Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnick. And I'm Greg Edge. We're both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Ooh, check it out, a chestnut-sided warbler. Oh yeah? How do you tell? That's a good question, Greg. Uh, If you look real closely, uh, it has chestnut-colored sides. Hmm. Uh, How about that one? Let's see. That is a clay-colored sparrow. And if you look closely, it's clay-colored. Aha. I see. Uh Uh, Brad, how about that one? Ah, the ruby-crowned kinglet. (laughs) Oh, I get it. If you look closely... It's got a ruby crown. Giddy up. <laughs> Brad, you don't really know your birds, do you? Um, You're no. just making this stuff up. No, I, I'm not making them up, though. I have this nifty app that's called Merlin, and it can identify song, birds by their song. So, But if it weren't for this, every bird would be an LBB. Uh, an LBB? A little brown bird. Uh, that's yeah, as close I got as I the get. Merlin app, too. It's pretty cool, yeah. so... It's sort of cheating. Yep. Well, Brad, luckily our guest today knows a lot more about birds and how we as foresters might start to integrate birds and other wildlife species, for that matter, into our forest management. So today our guest is going to be Dr. Mike Demchek, a forestry professor with the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point College of Natural Resources. Mike's work is broad and covers a lot of topic areas, Uh, but today... We'll be zeroing in on some of Mike's recent work dealing with how to better integrate birds and other wildlife into your forest management and silviculture. And now a quick word from Silvacast. Remember, continuing education credits are available for listening to Silvacast. Check out the Silvacast website for more information. And now back to the show. Professor Mike Demchek, welcome to Silvacast. For our audience members who aren't familiar with you or your work, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Mike Demchek, uh, professor of forestry at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Uh, I grew up in southern West Virginia. I've worked in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. So I've worked across a a fair amount of the kind of mid-Atlantic and the north. Uh, I teach courses in silviculture, courses in restoration, and actually at this point I've thought, taught 31 different uh, topic areas since I've been there, so it's <laughs> it's been pretty broad. And growing. And, yeah. and growing. Actually, <laughs> yeah. it will be 31 this uh, fall with a new class I'm picking up. So, hey Mike, we have a little bit of a tradition in Silvercast. <laughs> we like to ask our guests how they got into forestry or what first interests them in forestry. What's that story with you? Well, mine's a funny story on this. And so, you know, when the kindergarten teachers ask the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Well, I said I wanted to be a forester. I really don't know what started me down that path, but it's, it's pre-kindergarten. <laughs> it just blurted out, I want to be a forester. <laughs> you know, I've, I've just, I've never, I never remember wanting to be anything else, frankly. It's just, and so, yeah, when I first started college a bunch of years ago, sales for habitat purposes and that goes all the way back to the beginning of it basically. Oh. Oh. 
did you do stuff in the woods? Like all is the that time. why it came out in kindergarten? Like I want to do something in the woods. I that may have been. I know my dad had me planting trees way before I was in kindergarten, and I'm not talking like one or two trees. In West Virginia, you're looked at as a form of the workforce as soon as you <laughs> as soon as you learn how to walk. And so he had me doing that quite a bit, and that might have been it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I just, I don't have an answer as to how my initial interest uh, yeah. started, but it goes back to as far as I remember. Yeah. And that's where the prescribed burning at eight years old comes in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about that. But yeah, um, there's a lot, there was a lot of history of burning in West Virginia as well. And that, that's a common theme with our guests, that they were introduced really young and really early to the woods. It seemed to have kind of set them on a course to say, hey, maybe this is something I'd really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, not to obsess on this, but I know as I got into high school, you get the guidance counselors who are suggesting courses, and I did pretty good in school. So they were, you know, suggesting medicine or blah, 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 things of that nature. And I do remember uh, coming into the basement, we were all filthy. And we just, my dad and I had been out cutting trees and we came in through the basement because you know, we did not want to bring all of the you know sawdust and you know, borrow and stuff upstairs. And I'm walking up the stairs after we change and he's like, you know, don't listen to them. Listen to what I'm saying. You've, the only thing you've ever wanted to do, why would you change that? And I can really point to that specific you know, 16 or 17 year old walking up the stairs after having run a chainsaw all day that him saying that kind of gave me the mental freedom to say, you know, this really is what I should be doing. Yeah. And so, yeah. So if I'm going to give any advice to anybody, tell kids about this early and keep them interested in it and don't suggest it's away from it. It's a great field. We work with you, Mike, more often in lots of different avenues. So maybe we know you a little bit better than we know other guests. And so, Brad, you put together maybe a little bit of a a quiz. You know, this is going to be something we're going to expound. We're going to expand on this in Silvercast. We're going to. We're going to make quizzes oh. for our guests, but we're going to do trivia. No, it's not going to be trivia. It's going to be trivia. Our, oh, yeah. It's going to be big. Our guests will never yeah. come. So these are things we've overheard you say, and now you get to expound on it and tell everyone else, like, okay, here's what's behind that. So uh, so overheard when you were talking to your minions, uh, I want you to make the world a better place. So what's nice about being a forester is that if you're doing your job right, when you're done at the end of the day, the place is better. It's You essentially are taking something that could be better, you're putting effort into it, and at the end of the day, you're done, it is better. And the acreage you work with in forestry is large enough that this isn't, you know, in tens of acres or hundreds of acres, this is like literally thousands of acres. That as you add through a career, it becomes tens of thousands of acres. And so literally your footprint you know, you've made a hundred year footprint on many of these sites, you know, 50 years at least, a hundred years in many cases, sometimes even longer than that. And you're making a 50 to a hundred year imprint on thousands of acres. And sometimes if you're lucky and you stay in one place long enough, you get to go back in those sites two, three times. I've been in central Wisconsin long enough now that I've actually been on sites a second time. I'm one very soon is going to be on a third time. It's really kind of exciting because now I get to follow, like I'm seeing what I did in the past and I know what my thinking was. So I get to actually kind of build on how I was thinking as opposed to coming into someone else's area. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what other people were doing on the site. So that's what I'm meaning. You're making an impact at a very large scale. I mean, literally a landscape scale. 
and you're doing it for 50 to 100 years. I mean, lo far longer than your lifespan. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool because, you know, when you think about what other careers have that kind of long-term impact. Yeah. Um, so. I've often thought if they ever come up with a longevity drug, that Forrester should get it first because we're the ones that can really make a difference. <laughs> like if we could live, if you could live through like two rotations of something, you'd know a lot of, yeah. about that. Okay. And Probably I intend type. to. Yeah, I, I got it. some white pine on the north. You slope. go with that argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. I got okay. some white pine on the north slope down here that's about 80 to 100 years old right now. I want to put it on a rotation on 180 years. And to make sure it happens, I got to be, <laughs> yeah, I gotta that's be there. That's the only way it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's another one, Mike. Uh, my career now makes sense. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. said that, I think, at a meeting we were at. Yeah, and yep. that's, I can tell you why that probably happened. If you, so when I came out of school, you look at the collection of jobs I've had, and as a package, they sound weird. I've done like a bunch of different stuff. I mean, if you take some of the LTE things I've done, limited term employment, mm -hmm. I've done things like work for an Osprey reintroduction project. You know, osprey, like yep. birds. I've done uh, work with woodcock. I've uh, worked, did stuff with raptor rehabilitation for a while. I've done windbreaks and shelter woods and things, or shelter belts and things along riparian areas. So you start adding this together. I've worked with cow calf growers uh, managing timber. You start looking at all this together and it's kind of an unusual package, right? And when you try to sell that to people, it seems like you just did this, did this, it doesn't make sense, right? And now we're in a condition where so many landowners have such divergent interests, I can sell that. I mean, I have an interest in birds as we'll probably be talking about here in a little bit. Yep. And there are a lot of landowners. It is one of the most rapidly growing things in the outdoors right now is bird watching. And we have a lot of landowners interested in actually making their property better for birds. There are relatively few foresters who specialize in this, who actually understand enough about bird habitat that they can duct tape that together with an active timber sale. You have people that are good at habitat. You have people that are good at the forestry side, the active forestry. You have relatively few that blend it very well. And what I mean by now my life makes sense, everything rolls together, is I've been able to sell these divergent background as a package now mm -hmm. to people that frankly, may never have been interested in forestry otherwise. Right. And now you can talk about things like how to make better habitat for gold-winged warbler, how to make better habitat for chestnut-sided warbler, how to make better habitat for indigo bunning, or you know, pick your bird that you like, and how to do that within a property and still do it while making money on a timber sale. So yeah, yeah. that's what I was meaning by that. Yeah. But if somebody was just looking at your resume, they'd say, boy, this guy's really jumped around a lot. So. That would be what the last <laughs> last 18 years have been pretty stable. Here. Yeah. If you take prior to that, you would actually, there's a reason when you when I say I worked in Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia, and Minnesota, I mean, I've had different jobs and took where the right. opportunities led me. Yeah. Right. And variety in your background is a good thing because it exposes you to so many right. different things and it makes you well-rounded in your thoughts too. So. All right. I don't know about this last quote. Last one. All right. Well, I, I heard you say this. Uh, that's a potato chip with legs. Okay. This is a stolen thing. Uh, this, So this would have been referring probably to rough grouse, but I could have used it with almost any small bird. And so I like grouse. I like grouse a lot. This property we're actually um, standing on right now, it's the Burdat and Sarah Egan Nature Preserve. Uh, we actually did the work we did on this property with funding from Rough Grouse Society, American Woodtalk Society. So, I mean, this 
I have a really strong interest in in those birds, particularly the, the grouse. And what I can tell you is if you're a mama grouse, you look for a place actually just like what we're standing in. And some big trees where they can butt up against it to lay their eggs and about a 30 or 40 foot opening in front so it's kind of clear so they can see. But then dense escape cover right behind them. Actually, that would make a really, that tree right there, which you can't see in the recording, <laughs> would make a really good place for a grouse hen. As soon as those chicks hatch, and they're real precocious, they're up and moving quick, but as soon as they hatch, you might have 10 or 15 of them. And if they don't get to pretty dense cover, and by dense, I'm meaning ideal is aspen, but any species works, but anything that has a dense overstory over it, right? So you want five to 15 year old aspen, ideally berry brush underneath, so brambles underneath, so you've got this very impenetrable layer on top for like avian predators, and then something that's easy for a little bird that's only three inches tall to get through, mm -hmm. but difficult for a terrestrial predator to get through. Yeah. And the closer that proximity is, the less they get turned into potato chips with legs, because uh -huh. basically everything eats them, right? Yeah. I mean, every animal eats these little things. You'll see a mama, we have them on my place where the, the mamas will have, you know, a dozen little babies. You'll see that same mama, three days later, she's down to five. Yeah. It's like, yeah. couldn't you just do a little better? <laughs> three days. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's actually, you know, it's, it's surprising when you look at the mortality rate on these things that, that there are grouse and right. yet right. we still have them, but it is amazing how many of these things die. And so that's my potato chips. Yeah, with legs cool. Well, I think um, that kind of brings us <laughs> kind of full circle to what we're talking about today. And Mike, you said, you know, you really, your career has kind of focused you on the silviculture aspects and then the wildlife and bringing those two together. And so that's really been, I know, at least since we've known you, really your focus is kind of that intersection between forestry and wildlife. And and we were just discussing earlier about, you know, not all foresters look at the woods that way. And so we just wanted to get your thoughts on what foresters tend to maybe get wrong or maybe do right when they're looking um, at their silviculture from a wildlife standpoint. So I guess I'm gonna lead this in with, you talk about one forester, you're talking about one forester because they're just such a broad collection. Yeah, right. I know, right. I get it, I get <laughs> yeah. it. But yeah, I just wanna lead that forester. in because as, yeah. soon as, I, as soon as I say something right. generic, I can think of five people that right. that's not. But, right. but just, there's like three really big things. Thing number one, we shoot a lot of orange paint in the state. And I'm saying I'm saying this from a Wisconsin tree coating because in some other states, orange is used different. But here, oranges are take trees for state land. Although if you go other parts of the country, that is used differently as like a keep tree. But I'm presupposing take tree here. We spend a lot of time, if you look at what is the order of, you know, order of removal for trees. Be, yeah, abs no, the first thing that, yeah, let's just work with that. Yeah, the yeah, first yeah. step in the order of yeah. removal is high risk, right? Right. How many people, those trees you don't even have to think about, right? You go, bzz, 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 paint those, you, your brain's not even on, you hit those trees. How many of those trees don't actually even pay the logger to touch them with a saw? So a lot of times we take trees that actually have opportunities for wildlife. They have very minimal economic return currently or into the future. They would be better laying on the ground dead. And we actually hit those first. And in a lot of cases, you know, when I say 
Let's pick a great big ugly white oak. Rotten out barbed wire through it because it used to be a fence. Why mark that? I have to indicate to the logger that there's barbed wire in the bottom there. They're not gonna get much out of it. So number one is actually taking what would be future wildlife trees, future coarse woody debris, and just our interest in actually salvaging volume that's not necessarily economically valuable volume. I mean, I, and this, I'm, I'm partially responsible for this. Those little red maples with the seams up the side that are, that are pipe stems. I used to, those were the trees I never thought about. They died before I even, before I even thought about what I was doing on the site, right? Where do bats live? Where do these cavity nesting birds that need a nice controlled entry size because everything eats them? If it's small enough that a squirrel can't get in, but big enough that they can, that's an amazing cavity in a tree, right? First trees I used to kill. So that's number one. And like I said, I'm I'm responsible for this too. And I still occasionally fall into that trap of not thinking about I think those trees. They're just we've really easy that. to whack. Yep. Number two, I think that foresters tend to want to understand more frequently than they probably should on an economic basis, but also on a wildlife basis. And they tend to cut too lightly. So we do a lot of this every 10 or 15 years coming into a stand. And I think in a lot of cases, we don't build up enough volume to make it a super attractive timber sale. And then we cut pretty lightly. So if we're marking to like 80, which is a target I hear everybody say, mark to 80 square feet. What we end up having happen is not enough light gets to the ground. And so we don't get regeneration. And we don't get the regeneration, we don't get the forage production. And what forage we do get immediately gets annihilated by everything. And so I don't think we cut a lot of stands hard enough. And I think we want to come back in the stands too frequently. You know, you come back in every 10 years and your regeneration is, you know, a couple inches. It gets pulverized by the next stand entry and you perpetually are doing that, right? Once it's been there 25 years, it's big enough that they actually have to either go around it or cut it. So it's not just run it over. They have to do a physical action. And some of it's going to get cut. Like if you look just right in front of us here, there's an opening. Why is that opening there? Why cut that opening? I actually drop that tree in this spot right here. And that's why this opening is here. However, if you look around it, there's other trees around it. And those trees are there just simply because I physically would have had to cut them to remove them. And that's why they're still there. So that's number two. I don't think we hit enough. I don't think we hit our stands frequently hard enough to get the light to the ground that we need. And then I also think we tend to come back in a little too frequently. And I understand, I don't want to give the impression that I think that that's not sensible. In some cases, there are economic reasons to be in there every 10 years. But I think from a wildlife perspective, we'd be happier getting the basal area lower and um, then staying out longer. And the last one is I think we have a tendency to homogenize things. Um, and this is me too. Yeah. So, you know, I'm yeah. part of that problem. We go through and we set a target, particularly if we send new marking crews through, we set a target marked to 80 mm -hmm. and they go through the Aspen. And now what are they supposed to do? Or they go through this and there's a, like if you look right here and I said, mark this to 80, this is gonna be a mighty weird 80 where we're sitting, you know, standing right, right here, right? And some places, maybe it should be marked to like zero, you know, a little red line around it, which, you know, uh, interior stand boundary, cut that out and leave a hole there. Some cases we might wanna to mark to 40, get more like a shelterwood condition. Other cases we might wanna to keep to 110. If I have a, a lot of really nice bolts, maybe I wanna hold those a little bit bigger. And maybe I just wanna hold that area. I recognize that I'm suppressing the growth on those trees a little bit, but I'm also pushing uh, merchandisable height higher. Right. And within a stand, I end up with a much more diverse condition. 
maybe a little bit more difficult to manage when you got marking crews that are inexperienced, mm -hmm. maybe a little more difficult to manage with the loggers. Sometimes you end up color coding weird. We marked one down here in Monroe County here just about a month ago where we use green for everything. And by green, I mean that's reserve trees that keep trees. And so we marked it that way. Part of it's thinned, part of it's shelter wooded, part of it's uh, overstory removal. But if I keep one color, it makes it really easy for the loggers. Just don't, don't cut a green, keep, cut everything else. So all of these little one and two stick red maples that I want gone, don't have to mark those, they just die. And so if I was to say three things that, I'm not gonna say it's consistent because you know every forester does things a little different, but there's a tendency to homogenize stands. There's a tendency to cut them a little bit lighter than they probably should have to get regeneration in the sites. And then there's also a tendency to actually whack what would be wildlife trees, not necessarily current wildlife trees, but future ones. Like people see these snags and they recognize there's value there. Right. But we're in the lake states. This is humid here, it's very moist. These things don't last a long time. Now this is a magic snag that actually had a wood duck hen nesting in that one. Yeah. Um, this, yeah, this was actually kind of a cool one because of location. But that tree is going to be laying on the ground in 10 years. Yeah. The ones that are partly alive, where they got big tear outs on the side, they're not economically valuable. Those have all the biology of that tree trying to keep it vertical. So it might be 20, 30, 40 years that it's still there. I would say some of those things are not only difficult for new foresters, but they're, it makes it more <coughs> complicated for experienced foresters as well. Um, just to be thinking about all these things. But we've talked about that in the past too. It also, that creativity makes silviculture part of the enjoyment of it actually. Yeah, and it's that two poles of, you know, we spent part of our time in, in silviculture and in forest management trying to put, feels like order, right? Like we know, like here's the what we want to thin this down to, but then we still want <laughs> that variety within the stand that supports all these other functions. And so like, if you're a consulting forester and you're supposed to market to a certain basal area, that's your expectation. And it's always hard when you see, because like, I think you're identifying, you know, we need to be kind of opportunistic to identify opportunities as a part of our management, which is something I don't think we've really done as well as we need yeah. to in the past. And I just think about we need to know some, we need to be more knowledgeable. Like you pointed out that example of that would be a really good nest tray for a rough grouse given that situation. So, but you have that specific knowledge and I just think about, okay, well, you know, in order to implement it, you gotta have that knowledge base to be able to recognize those things right. and, and um, alter your marking or your prescription. Yep. So, and maybe that ties itself into where we're standing right now. So, so we dragged our audience into the field with us today. So, so Mike, tell us what are we what are we standing? What are we looking at here? Okay, so this property has a long story. I'm going to make it a little briefer so that this actually is something that. <laughs> has an interest. So this site is what was the the location of the Whirlstead Sawmill, if you go back uh, over a hundred years ago at this point. And so Flume Creek runs through here. Uh, you still have some of the structures, like the old dam structure oh, still yeah. there. All the wooden stuff is long since yeah. gone. It actually burned back in, I think it was 1916 or something. And then they reformed it as a grist mill after that. And so part of the work on this property was actually uh, keeping that historical stuff in place and actually documenting what we can. So this is owned by the UWSP Foundation, U University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point Foundation. And it was donated to the university uh, by, well, the Burdett Egan donated. It's the Sarah, Burdett and Sarah Egan 
uh, nature preserve. And so for our seniors in their uh, forest ecosystem restoration and management option within forestry, they have a senior capstone experience. And that senior capstone experience is composed of two courses, NR457 ecological monitoring and NR459 um, ecological restoration and management. The idea behind that capstone is I get them for six hours on a Friday. They have regular lecture times. They have discussion times and things like that. But on Friday, the students take in both of those classes at the same time, which are predominantly all of our restoration students, get a six hour time block. That means that we can come out here and do some immersion activity. So for this particular property, I got funding through Rough Grouse Society, Woodcock Society to actually do this work. The students got a list of specific neotropical migrant birds, as well as woodcock that they had to do habitat. They were broken into teams, a historical team, which focused on the historical component of the site, an uplands team, a wetlands team, uh, because we have the Flume Creek through as well as the adjacent wetlands. And their job was to develop a monitoring plan and a restoration plan for the property, and then do a public presentation for it. And then to come out and implement it. And so these students, many of them, I ran uh, S212 out here, uh, the wildland fire chainsaw course uh, with the Forest Service. So we actually ran that, these trees in here, many of them were cut with that. We uh, ran, I have another course, restoration field techniques. And that course, uh, they learned chainsaws, brush saws, backing trailers, tractors, rotary seating, all the collection of skills that are those early career essential skills. Those students were out here running brush saws. They were out here running chainsaws. I ran chainsaw qualifiers out here for them. So these students all got that basic kind of training and they all did it on this site. So we did the work on the site physically with the students. The students planned it, they carried it out, and then they did both an indoor public presentation, but then they also did multiple field presentations. We ran three back-to-back -back field presentations out here. One with the local community members, one with involved stakeholders that included the, the donor's children. And then also with the Tamara River School District who brought a bunch of their students out here as well. So we did three field tours, you know, very different audiences because yeah. I wanted them to get the experience. Presenting to sixth graders is significantly different than presenting to, you know, the donors heirs, right? And so this gave them an opportunity to walk through what they did. And by happenstance, it's in spring when all the magic birds are here. So we had magnolia warblers passing through. We had red starts. I mean, we had all kinds of stuff here. And of the birds that they were targeting, I think we heard all but one that day on site. So you want to give students some real uh, motivation is have them come out. They were targeting a specific group of animals and then come out to the site and actually see them using yeah. that site. And so that's that's kind of what happened on this property. It um, We have things anywhere from along the riparian area. Uh, we have these wetlands down there, which we can walk to in a little bit, uh, that have a lot of alder in them. So we did partially uh, some alder cutting down there to allow it to re-sprout. Woodcock like relatively young, straight alder, but we don't just want it all one age. So what we did is we cut about 20% of it, and in six years, we're gonna come and cut another 20% of it. And figuring in 30 years, we will have basically got everything from old to young. We did supplemental planting in there, uh, red osier dogwood, uh, high bush cranberry, as well as some swamp white oak. We were mentioning earlier the black ash in here. Well, long-term, this black ash isn't gonna be here. 
And so we're trying to get some different uh, seed sources in there so that we actually have plant materials to fill that back sounds in. sounds like uh, more experience than I got in yeah. undergrad, just thinking back. It sounds more like uh, my NAS certification yeah. or something. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> it sounds like a great class. Yeah, it really does. Fantastic class. It does seem like the students really enjoy the experiences. Yeah. We've, so, we've been doing that. This is the first year I've done it with both of those courses together, but we've been doing it with individual courses in the past on a collection of different properties. Yeah. So did birds play a big role in the kind of the objectives and kind of things for the property? Exactly. The uh, Upland team and the wetlands team for this essentially had a subset of birds that they were supposed to manage for, meaning they had to understand the habitat elements associated with those birds and how to put those on the landscape. And so, you know, some example birds, American Red Start was in there, Veery was in there, and those are both on site. I did not actually have, intentionally did not put golden wing warbler because I did not expect that I would actually be able to get them on the site. But we actually have golden wing warbler here and chestnut sighted as well. And it's kind of a little bit, a little bit further south than I would actually expect to see them. Although I do have them seeing those chestnut sighted warblers moving much further south than they used to be if you go back when I first came here. Because hmm. I mean, we, we actually had them nesting down in Washera County this year. And that's, that is like, know 80 miles south if you go back 10 years where they used to be so there something's going on there yeah huh. i'm there's as you know mike there's lots of initiatives across the eastern united states and probably elsewhere with forestry for the birds type of thing and what i'm really interested here with what you're talking about is i'm always looking for specifics like was there silviculture that your students employ that was specific to groups or what we call guilds of birds and and are there different guilds even within this property how did that work so for this property i can say this i can say this is the cute part of it on the same property i have scarlet tanager and i also have golden wing warbler and you know people would look at those as like the cosmic opposite yeah. birds those by are, habitat elements those are worlds that collide very often and yeah. it's interesting because part of the reason for this I guess what I would say is this, when I look at these individual species, there are certain consistent habitat elements. And when you look at them, each stage of their life cycle, they have different things they need. You know, gold-winged warbler being an example. That uh, sheared alder down there that we brush sawed down, that stuff actually, that younger alder is really useful for them when they're doing their nesting and early on. But then as soon as the little suckers are fledged, they actually go out and use big, you know, big timber. They actually, you know, feed in the big trees then. They're not they're not a specialist to early successional habitat. It's that early successional habitat is actually one of the gaps that screws up their life cycle. You know, we you hear people call rough grouse, you know, early successional specialists. They're not really. Rough grouse actually are diversity, birds that are needing high diversity. And we can talk about them here in a little bit. But the thing is, the part that's always missing in their life cycle is that early successional. We just don't have that. And that's the same thing with these golden wing warblers. You know, we're standing under a fairly full crown with pockets that are in it. That's really good habitat for them for foraging once the little chicks are fledged. Uh, but for that early part of the life, the gap is they don't have that young stuff with those micro edges, like the grasses and sedges next to the sprouting alder or the sprouting uh, aspen. And so that's kind of the gap that's missing. We could say this for almost every one of these birds. You know, you had mentioned uh, scarlet tanager at one point. That's a bird that's associated with big woods, but it's actually got some really specific elements for its nesting. It actually likes to have these multi-tier, like if you have a big oak tree and you have heavy 
leaves out at the edge. It'll actually nest towards the edge of the branches where it has multiple tiers of leaves. How do we make that? We don't get that in a super dense canopy. That's one that's been thinned, right? right? So you end up with those trees mining out into new, you know, new area and building up those layers of leaves. It's a very specific habitat element. We can make that. The same thing with like we were mentioning, I think black-throated blue and black-throated green, both of them, the warblers earlier. Those are both ones that nest in small trees and shrubs. And so those, if I want to want those birds, in order to make those things happen, I need to put holes in the stand. So I get that habitat element in place. If I don't have that habitat element, they don't have a place to nest. And so these stands that where you go underneath and it's like a complete park and it's just acres and acres of just open nothingness. And all you hear is oven birds. You know, I like oven birds, they're cool. But if I hear a lot of oven birds in my mind, I'm always thinking there's something wrong with this place because they actually like that really kind of park-like open thing. They walk around like little, little miniature chickens on the ground. They eat, you know, a lot of invertebrates out and they'll scratch the leaves. I mean, literally like a little baby chicken. And when I hear a lot of them, it's usually associated with the fact that I don't have these habitat elements. You know, their mm -hmm. presence, just having them there, they're everywhere. So, I mean, they're almost a generalist type bird, at least in the lake states. But I don't look at them as saying anything unless that's all I'm hearing. And when that's all I'm hearing, it usually means that that's all that can be there. And yeah. it's because that site has just been completely homogenized, one crown layer and an understory of uh, pen sedge or something like that. And so that difference that we end up getting with this, where we start getting that structural diversity on the site, where we start getting those younger trees as well as the older trees, we start getting habitat they can use. And, you know, this is this riparian area, this forest, you know, this just south of us here is essentially fairly moist, it's high water table. And so this high water table area down here, we end up with tree tips, root wads come up, another really valuable nesting habitat for these animals. Uh, we end up in those areas where those root wads come up, we end up with these openings, they fill in with shrubs, another valuable nesting habitat for these animals. You start going through this, and then as the canopy starts to recover, we get the branches off the trees trying to mine into those openings that get created, either the ones we make by cutting the holes in there or the ones that happen naturally. So that structural diversity we're talking about where we start getting the younger trees as well as the older trees, where you get these openings and you'll have trees just doing what they do, particularly hardwoods, which is sending out their branches to try to use, utilize that new light. So we have like American red starts. I mentioned them earlier. They're associated with those wetter sites. You know, they'll be in the uplands as well, but they kind of like these high water table sites with associated streams and such. And those females will actually choose if they have the option, these 90 degree branches off of trunks with a lot of uh, canopy cover over top of them. So they're visu visually protected, but they also want that nice stable branch union. Where do we get those 90 degree branches? where we cut those holes in the stand and these little young stock put their branches out to start mining it. And we also get our regeneration in there. So, I mean, it's it's not actually that different a silviculture, right? Yeah. It's just kind of paying attention to what we can get with different elements. And, you know, the black-throated black green and black-throated blue, both of those utilize that very specific type of habitat, that young tree scrubby regen with an overstory over it. That sounds a lot kind of like uneven age management, right? If we're carrying it out right, if we get the regeneration. Right. And 
we can do a lot of this. We can put holes in the stand, group selections. We can do patch selections. Actually, those patch selections are amazing for a lot of the species that we like. For some of the game species like rough grouse do really well with that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I was going to say, so then do you approach it from a, like, uh, when you're thinking about that management goal as a early or late successional, or do you kind of say, well, here we can work with the property and what's here to achieve both of them? on the property. It's depending on what the landowner wants. So when I've done this with private landowners, university properties, it's going to vary by what the goals and all the stakeholders are for those properties. The same with state properties. There's, there's a huge involvement of stakeholders with private lands. I still may have a wide involvement of stakeholders because some of these private lands are owned by a pretty substantial number of people. And what you end up with is diverging goals, but trying to actually take and mesh these together. Some properties, they just aren't capable of certain kinds of management. It's too many things have happened in the past. We have timber that's been hydrated in the past or hard selection harvest. Most of the volume there right now is not very good quality. That limits what our options are in the future. And it's just, it really depends on the stand conditions. Sometimes some of the stand is really good and some of the stand is bad. I've seen some of these hydrated northern hardwood stands that are like this. You get a nice ridge through the center. It got some really good volume, grew up in there. It's now pole size, it's actually really nice looking stuff. And a lot of the lower stuff is terrible looking. And you end up with a stand that's managed really different depending on what's available in that spot. It's hard to train a marking crew to do this, by the way. You have to come up with guidelines that are that are anybody's capable of following. And you know in Wisconsin, how much of this stuff is marked by interns or fairly early career foresters because it just brutalizes your body, right? Yeah. I mean, you're doing this every day and it's usually done by early career people, particularly on a lot of the lower quality stands, just simply because it's too physically taxing to carry it out long-term. So you get it done by a little bit younger people and that's fine, but it also means that your instructions to the crew have to be much more specific and a lot more upfront training. And from what I can tell, while some, while some foresters do an amazing job training their workers, and I do not want to downplay that. Some people do an amazing job of that. Others don't. And they give instructions that are pretty much simply mark the junk Mm -hmm. and they work through complaining at the workers and not doing what they want. And that's the extent of it. And that doesn't get you to a happy end point. And that's the conditions where you need really pretty tight guides on how to have people doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about kind of the assessment end of it. We talk a lot about having good stand assessment and kind of developing that <coughs> detail that then we would pass down to the marking crew. So we, you know, struggle with that actually, right. you know, broadly and trying to get that to work well on landscape. But I think about like what you're saying, Mike, and what I'm hearing you say is that depending on the property that you have, you could have a lot of different opportunities, particularly for these different bird species. You need to recognize and know something about what those needs are within the property. I mean, with the birds that we're talking about. I mean, are we working on guidance to get to some of that silvicultural detail that we would know something about you know at least if i'm a forester at least this guild of birds i kind of know these characteristics would be really good to focus on or this guild i could focus on those 
Are we there yet or are we working on that? We're working on it and I won't say we're there yet, but we're close to it. We're actually uh, starting a project which was funded, a landscape scale restoration project uh, that was funded to put in demonstration areas doing just this. And they're gonna be through many of our main timber types in Wisconsin. We're gonna be doing some within Northern hardwoods. We already have some in place in more central hardwoods, some in place in oak stands, some in place with aspen stands already. And so we are gonna be installing more of these. They're gonna come with an online presence that describes them as well as a collection of uh, field tours on it. We've been running continuing education trainings through the Wisconsin Forestry Center uh, that detail this stuff. And yeah, essentially there are some habitat elements that it doesn't require people to have a super amount of training with many of these birds where we can actually get habitat elements that can be put in place literally just simply by training marking crews to do some very basic, basic techniques. But we're developing the materials for literally right now. Um, I'm hoping within two to three years, I'm going to have a few dozen of these to show you. I can tell you this is one of them right here where we have very good data on. Uh, we did point count surveys on this particular property this summer, so I can pretty much tell you exactly who's on this site. We have a collection of five irregular shelterwoods that are 15 years old now, which um, Brad's been doing stuff with me on. And we have bird counts for those as well, point counts that detail who's using it, as well as very detailed assessments of what the regeneration is. We're going to be doing prescribed burns on some of those plots, and then we'll come back and look at the post-burn impact on the regeneration, particularly the oak within it, and then also the uh, post-burn bird usage as well as post-burn forage production. Uh, we also are doing work on a barrens project where this barrens restorations, we have um, 30 total units, 20 of which are our quote research units where we are in the process right now of doing detailed vegetation survey, like that's what I was doing yesterday, as well as carnivore butterfly survey. We have three years of data on that, as well as bird point counts. And we have all those completed this year so as well. Are you seeing results um, now in terms of, uh, you implemented these practices within this parcel and can say something <laughs> about bird usage? Yes. And that's what's so cool about this. It took me, I hate to say this, but you have to live in a place long enough. I, I finally have been here long enough that I have 15 years of data, like 15 years of sight, right? So I knew it from before it was cut and I've got that 15 year window with it and I've got you know, periodic information on it. So yeah, I've actually got, for those kind of sites, I've got some pretty good data with them at this point. I've got a graduate student that actually got working on that project who um, is gonna be, pretty heavily involved with that. And for my Barron's work, I have a graduate student working on that as well. So yeah, we've actually got enough of a window of time now that within the next two years, we're gonna have some pretty good data on it. This site had uh, both woodcock and grouse as uh, some of the goals. And so we moved up trail a little bit here so I could actually kind of talk about what we're doing. If you're grouse, each stage of your life, you've got different needs and they're actually pretty divergent. We start with uh, mama in spring. She needs a place to lay her eggs. Ideally, she's got 30 foot clear cover in front of her so she can see open. Ideally, she'll nest against either a big rock, a stump, or a, a tree, and escape cover close. And so she'll lay her eggs, she'll incubate her eggs, and then the little chicks will hatch. From that point on, she doesn't really need that site anymore. What she actually needs is high density cover. and 
we always think about in the lake states aspen for this but it doesn't need to be aspen actually it works really well with oak too what you really need is high density cover high stem density generally with a two-storied condition by two-storied in an absolute ideal world blackberry brush underneath and over top aspen or maybe aspen and oak and the reason for that is as chicks up to about six weeks old they eat almost exclusively insects and i should say invertebrates it's insects plus other invertebrates and so those actually provide really good places for them to get the food but it also provides the predator protection and the closer the proximity of those two sites the place the hen nests to where she takes her chicks the higher the survival is going to be and she'll take those chicks miles if needed but if you can imagine those potato chips with legs we were talking about earlier if you have to go miles you're not having a very good deal right. you're going to be eaten by something and so on a site like this we've got this high density cover right here right next impact trees hey mike is this an example of maybe some of that gross habitat maybe that nesting area that you're talking about what did you create here so this area we're sitting right now is actually more of that nesting habitat essentially we have some trees open understory underneath it that area out there was predominantly box elder it has since been cut uh, brush sawed and replanted to a collection of different species so we've got hazelnuts that we planted out there We've got uh, plum, we've got choke cherry. Uh, there's a collection of different species as well as forbs. We've also got pockets of white spruce that have been planted here to act as thermal cover. Hmm. And so essentially what we got there is what's going to be the new early successional habitat. We've also got right behind us on the back side of this alder that's been cut and it's re-sprouting. Hmm. So that gives us the place for the hens to have their, have their chicks. It gives us a place for them to take them so that they can feed and forage. And once they hit six weeks, they start feeding as heavily as they can on beyond just the insects. They'll also eat flower buds and they're gonna eat uh, things like uh, soft mast and fruit. And so the presence of those fruits out there is gonna be really helpful for them. As they start moving in the fall, if they have hard mast, they'll eat it, the hazelnuts we put out there. And uh, there's also gonna be acorns of a number of species here. And then as we move into winter, they start feeding very heavily on the buds of aspen and birch and things like that. And so we also have that mature aspen and birch down in the riparian corridor here. It'll be cut in about 10 years, but in this next 10 years, it's gonna function. And as we start getting this age class diversity, we're gonna have the older stuff that they can butt on in winter. They'll have the younger stuff that they can use as escape cover. And then they'll have patches like this. These aren't gonna be permanent. You know, this patch in 10 years, this is gonna be cut here. And when this gets cut in 10 years, it's gonna be that young stuff in another five. Yeah. I was gonna ask you is, is how do you make considerations for not only <coughs> these different habitat niches today, but then like, how's that gonna evolve over time? So you're, you're saying you're anticipating that, like this is gonna evolve it, yep. you know, into escape cover and that's going to be, that aspen is gonna be feeding cover now, but it's gonna be regenerated and escape cover at a different, different interval in the future. Yeah. So you're thinking like three steps ahead. So some of it's as simple as when you're actually doing your aspen coppices, keeping some small pockets or reserves, quarter acre reserves of hardwood or individual conifer reserves. In the short term, those might act as like singing perches for things like these gold wing warblers, but long term, 
you now end up having habitat elements for those things like the black-throated green. You end up with those conifer reserve trees. They're quite tall. Right now, they're just standing out in the middle of nowhere. But in 40 years, you've got fairly big aspen out there. And then you've got these conifers over top it. You've got a completely separate habitat element out there. Mm -hmm. With a few reserve trees, you may not have operational volumes. But if you actually plan this so that you have a matrix of these and you have these little two and three acre elements that you're cutting, the next time you come in, and I've made mistakes on this in the past where some some of this is just putting in the infrastructure like you want. So you're actually putting in where you want your forwarder trails or your skid trails and you actually reuse those and you run them to the side. So there's no reason to go back into those pockets again and basically set it up. You know what it's going to be now. You know what it's going to be in 10 or 15 years. You know what it's going to be in 10 or 15 years after that. If you use the same trails and why wouldn't you? Those are the easy access and you just plan it. So they're operational units mm -hmm. and it all sounds a bit like a chess match. Oh, it's yeah. always a chess match. <laughs> and it's issues of holding volume, too. In a lot of cases, you may actually want to be more aggressive right now, but you need a few hundred cords in the future to actually have a commercial entry then. And yeah. to get what you want 15 years from now, you may hold back on some volume that's actually ready right now to have that volume waiting in 15 years when you need it to do the next step. And I've actually had some arguments with people specific, specifically over that element, holding some volume that is quote mature, but I'm holding that volume because I know I'm gonna be able to use yeah. that volume to get people in to do this Later. work right. that I need yep. 15 years. So Greg, maybe I should, <clears throat> I'm, I'm afraid to open, I usually think of these as three beer conversations. Uh-oh. But, but as I'm standing here looking at this, Mike, I'm thinking, God, this looks like a restoration. Yeah. But I don't think we really talk about forest restoration and forest management very much. <laughs> and, and I know when I've had that conversation with people, there have been a lot of opinions about, well, what is a restoration? So how do you view, if you, I, I, I think you agree that this looks like restoration. What do you, how do you think of, or how do you define or think about restoration? There are really a few elements of restoration. It's basically structure and function, right? You're trying to restore processes that are natural. And a lot of what we do within forestry is that. I mean, you start thinking, what are our main silvicultural systems, you know, for the things we use for rotating stands? Well, uneven age management, what are we working with? Well, that's just mimicking, you know, wind disturbance on a relatively smaller scale, right? Uh, shelter wood, a little bit bigger scale wind disturbances. Coppices, even bigger scale wind disturbances. So, I mean, a lot of what we're doing is mimicking natural processes, right? Within restoration, a little bit more modern thought process on restoration is we're essentially looking at this as just restoring structure and function. And within these stands, that's completely compatible with most forestry. So it's these are not incompatible things. I hear in Wisconsin mostly, you hear people talk about restoration that's focused on prairies or barrens, right. maybe savannas. But if you look at a lot of our northern hardwood resource in Wisconsin, it's got some issues with it right now and it needs some pretty aggressive work done with it. And that doesn't preclude harvest, it actually presupposes harvest in a lot of cases. Many of these things, many of these elements we want, if you leave it, do it on its own, it may never do it or it may take 200 years. I can escalate that in a lot of cases to where I start getting those elements. I mean, I get an initial impact and you can put a 50 year time window on something that may have taken 200 years otherwise. So yeah, I mean, it's, I look at it as a much broader process. It's just a thought process. And it does not, I don't want to say it precludes economics on it. Actually, a lot of this can be driven through economic return. You can make money doing it. And, and what I've heard for 
so that restoration is maybe dependent upon what would have been there previously. And I think like, like you mentioned, if, we, if we're thinking about that function, or we're thinking about maybe structures in general or kind of structural, not necessarily to a particular, uh, you know, like getting super specific, then that, that definition of restoration can be fairly broad and applicable to a lot of what we do in forestry if, we, if we're mindful about how we apply it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, a lot of what we're doing within restoration, I think early on there were some missteps where they were really picking specific points in history and trying to restore to those. And it's just based on a lack of available data. Plus, we have some pretty big changes that have happened in our forest in this time. This site has some invasives, but if you go into some of these systems, I mean, they're dominated by an understory of invasives. We did some work down uh, in Plover where I was cutting 86-year-old uh, buckthorn. I mean, buckthorn that were 20 inches in diameter. That is an awful lot of ecological pressure to push against and try to fix. And so there are some of these systems, if you start thinking, this site's got black ash on it, I'm pretty sure it's not gonna be here in 10 years. Right. I mean, we were actually doing work planning for when that black ash dies. We have um, sites where we have pretty rampant oak world around here. We have sites with conifers where we have heterobasidian root disease that you can model out in 20 years, they're all gone. And you start doing this, you start looking at these influences and it's, I think it's excessively simplistic to pick one little snapshot in history and assume that's what something should be when the reality is there's a lot of things we could do and we're also dealing with these newer issues that we just you know if you told someone i remember in minnesota in year 2000 planting ash trees i loved them they were amazing for windbreaks just amazing for windbreaks i personally stuck them in the ground I would not do that now. Yep. That's not that many years ago. Literally, when did the when did Emerald Ash Borer come here? Like two thousand two. Yeah. It's been. Yeah. We're yeah. looking at a. Well, there was a saying around Wisconsin. At least we have ash. Exactly. <laughs> I remember being in these meetings. My dad, when I was younger, took me to some of these meetings where the elm was dying in West Virginia, and he, they were, they literally asked the question. I remember this. What do we plant that doesn't get anything? Ash. Yep. They literally plug the same street tree holes with these ash trees. Diversity's our friend. Yeah. <laughs> Having a bunch of ash trees is just the next problem that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. okay. And so, yeah, I think it's excessively simplistic to think about it that way. We really need to think about process, structures, functions within these. And that's a very broader, very much broader conversation yeah. than some yep. snapshot in history. Yeah, we've had that conversation a lot of thinking about function more broadly right. just because things are changing so much and so fast right as how can we keep the function right yeah so this has been a great conversation yeah say th uh, thank you mike this is I, I pulled a lot i hope our uh i hope our audience gets a lot out of this too and thanks for coming giving us a tour yeah. of the, the site here it's fun to do these recordings out in the field although haley our producer may you know, be a little chagrined at the noise. Yeah. So thanks, Mike. Yep. Okay. Thank you. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you want to send, and share them with our listeners. Brad, to be honest, uh, we've had a little bit of dry spell in our Dropbox, so I'm thinking we may need to reinstitute the the raffle i think we or, need an incentive yeah so 
So if, so how gonna, about this? You're gonna come up with something? How about this? We're gonna have a drawing again this year. Send us a comment, send us a question, tip, etc. You'll get and into your the name raffle. goes into the drawing uh -huh. and you could be one of the grand prize winners and, at the end of the year. And we'll find a piece of junk to raffle uh, 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 off. Uh, uh, we will find something that is, it may be a curiosity, but it, <laughs> we may find it very intriguing, but it definitely, it will be something they will treasure for the rest of their lives. You may be curious about yeah. it, but. Hey Greg, here's a good one for you. Why is it sometimes hard to see birds in the woods? I don't know, I have no idea. Yeah. It's because many of them are in disguise. <laughs> get it? In yeah. disguise? Yeah, I get it. I think I need a disguise. Yeah. In any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have any ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, if you want to win that grand prize, mm. please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Cue theme music. Take care, everyone, and as always... Thanks to our team, Haley Freighter, Editor-in-Chief, Noah LeMaid, our IT master, theme music by Paul Freighter, and of course, UW-Stevens Points, Wisconsin Forestry Center.